Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Okay. Well, morning, everyone. Good morning. Ruth chapter 4. By this point in the series, all of us are on tender hooks, wondering what's going to happen in this uh, amazing um, this amazing story. Uh, it's been a real joy to uh, listen to it, to preach as part of it. And um, we're going to read Ruth chapter 4 all the way through in just a moment. Um, just a quick recap um, in terms of those of you who weren't around for, for uh, Ruth, Ruth 3. If you weren't around for 1 and 2, I can't do the whole recap of that. But last, last time, so Naomi sent uh, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to go to Boaz. Um, I guess kind of, yeah, under the cover of darkness in that sense, and to, uh, I guess, essentially invite him uh, to marry her. Um, he was a very honorable man. He could have been a very, he could have taken advantage in that moment. He could have simply slept with her, and then she would have been his wife in that sense by default. That's how, that's how things worked. But there was, uh, he, Boaz knew that there was someone else in the family line that was close. You see, in those days, back in the day, um, in these sorts of societies, if you lost your husband, you were without any kind of provision. You were without any kind of protection because of the way that the society was set up. Therefore, it would have been um, your dead husband's brother's responsibility to marry you in order that you might have some offspring who could then grow up to protect and you and provide for you. Okay, that was the idea. So it was, a, it was built in in order for the wider family to take some responsibility in a situation. And so if you were that brother, brother-in-law that was called upon to take, um, to take your, um, your widowed sister-in-law to be your wife, um, and, and you were to uh, sleep with her, and she was to conceive and have a child, that child wouldn't be your child. It would be the child of your deceased brother. Does that make sense? That child would not be, it would be considered the child of your deceased brother. So in that sense, you were offering him a service and you were providing for his deceased wife. That was the, sort, that was the idea of, of how it worked. Um, and, it, and it was done in a very orderly way in terms of who, who, who was next in line. And Boaz knew that it, he, there was someone else before him. And so he said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do something decisive here, but we're going to do it the right way. So let's read chapter 4 of Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, that's this, the one who's this, this kin who's closer, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he got a circle of elders. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field, the day you redeem it from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. 
lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. that I have bought the land of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Marlon, the two boys who died. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Amen. Father, we thank you for this amazing story, and I want to pray, Lord, that you'd really help me to communicate in the power of your spirit. So it wouldn't just be a talk, a lecture, or whatever, Lord, but you would do something through this message people's hearts um, you would own your word you would watch over it and perform it in people's lives we pray in Jesus name amen so this book's really setting up for the the, the, the next two books one Samuel and two Samuel they're really focusing on King David so they're setting us up for that so that we understand where David came from in that sense now first of all I want you to just notice this is the perfect ending to a story It's absolutely magnificent. Notice all these things about it. Um, Number one, Boaz, he just did it really, really well. Everything was above board. Everything was orderly. Everything was appropriate. Everything was honest. I mean, think about what it could have been. This woman comes to him at night. He could have just, you know, he could have thought, I want this woman. But there's someone closer in line. If I just sleep with her now, then she's mine. Um, and then nothing can be done about it. But instead you see honor. You see nobility. You see something in the heart of the man who says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. We're not going to take the shortcut. We're going to do it the godly way. We're going to honor the order of things. It's beautiful. It's very powerful. We see selflessness. You see, when he, when he presents the prospect to this closest redeemer, the closest redeemer says, I cannot, once he realizes that Ruth's part of the deal, he says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. 
But why would his own inheritance be impaired? Well, it could be for two reasons. It could be number one, he's probably going to have to, in order to invest in this new relationship and everything and in, and in the land uh, that Naomi owns, he's probably got to maybe remortgage a bit of his land or sell a bit of his land to invest. And then guess what? The inheritance of this land won't be his. It will be his and Ruth's child who won't be considered his own son. So financially, he could be at a loss. Or it could be that he's already married. Now, in those days, if you were already married, this was called a lever at marriage when you, when you honored your nearest kin who had been widowed. And so it wasn't just kind of out, outright outrageous polygamy. It was a way of protecting the wider family. It was different from just plain polygamy in that sense. Everyone understood this is how things are set up. And yet, nevertheless, obviously, um, polyg- God is not for polygamy, and it creates all kinds of problems. Um, and so it could have been that he just thought, I'm already married, this is going to cause too much stress. Either way, he looked at it, he looked at his own situation, and he said, this is going to cost me too much. Boaz, on the other hand, we, you know, Boaz, we don't know much about Boaz's um, personal circumstances, but we know that it's going to cost him a lot, he's going to have to invest, um, and that this offspring won't be considered his in that truest sense, but will be considered Marlon's, who was the deceased husband of Ruth. And yet he says, yeah, I'm in. Selfless. Just notice these characteristics coming through in the way this is done. Notice the inclusion. All these neighbors are around. Naomi's there. Everyone's involved. It's not just some small little thing in a corner so we can keep the good stuff to ourselves. It's, it's, it's a, there's a broad sweep. There's an embrace. There's generosity. Notice the joy and the celebration. Listen to what the women say in verses 14 and 15. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day to Naomi without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. There's extreme joy and celebration. Also, it's God-centered. May the Lord... Make, the, make this woman like Rachel and Nia. It's full of the presence of God. I want you to just see that this, it's absolutely perfect. But now I want you to also to remember this, that it was a complete mess. Really important to remember both those things. It's come together perfectly, but it was a total mess. Naomi and her husband Elimelech moved because of a famine. So straight away they, 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 they leave the, the, the promised land because of a famine. And then when they get there, Naomi loses her husband and both of her sons. I mean, this is really, really tragic. If any of you have ever lost someone close to you, that's really heartbreakingly bad. But then another one and then another one. It's brutal. She comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi, Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She's just... It's just, it's just been a nightmare. She's come back really with um, one daughter-in-law who refused to let go of her. That's why she's come back with her. She's just a please go. I've got nothing to offer anyone. It's been horrible. A real mess. And so the key word we have in the whole of the story of Ruth is redeem. The idea of redeem or redemption, it occurs about 10 or 11 times in the, in the very short book of Ruth, four chapters, it's the key theme. To redeem is to buy something back. It's when you lose something and then something happens whereby you buy the thing back that was lost. Something is restored to you. Something is brought back that you thought was gone forever. No, no, no. It's brought back in. It's the power of 
redemption. That is what is going on there. Now, on, on one level, it's quite, um, how can I put it? It's quite clear on the surface. The name Redeemer is used a lot. It's used in, in, in quite a human sort of way. It's the term used for whoever's going to help to fix this situation, whether Boaz or the other relative, redemption. But when you begin to get under the surface of it, I want you to see something really, really profound and inspiring. In this blessing in verse 11, all the people were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Listen to this. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And then he says, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I don't know if you know anything about the story of Rachel and Leah, or anything about the story of Perez and Tamar and Judah. I'm going to tell you those two stories very quickly, just to give you a sense of it. Rachel and Leah, here's what happens. Jacob has to leave his home because he stitched his brother up. His brother wants to kill him. He has to run away and stay with his uncle Laban. Immediately falls in love with Rachel, um, Laban's youngest daughter of the two. Leah and Rachel falls in love with Rachel. Says, I'll do anything for her. Says, yeah, fine, work seven years for me and you can have my daughter Rachel as your wife. We're told that it seemed by a few days because of his love for her. Okay, he loves her. She's a delight to him. No problem. And don't ask me how this happens. We don't have the details. But on the wedding night, Laban, Rachel and Leah's dad's thinking, we're never going to get Leah married at this, at this rate. What we're going to do, we're going to kind of, when it's all dark in the tent, and instead, of, instead of Rachel going to the tent, it's going to be Leah that goes in the tent. Now, obviously, we've got no electricity and streetlights in these days, so probably that's part of the reason. Anyway, <laughs> Jacob has his honeymoon night with Leah, wakes up in the morning and says, what the... And then Laban says, oh yeah, you can have Rachel as well if you work for me for another seven years. It's a, it's a mess. But he does, because he loves Rachel so much. He marries them both. It's constant um, difficulty, strife, tension, competition. It's a mess. It's a mess. And yet, out of these two women come the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. So here... It, says, it just says simply, may she be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Ah, you get underneath a story and you go, it's a mess. It's actually a mess. It's painful. It's tense. It's competitive. There's rivalry. It's disappointment. In the end, Jacob with Rachel and Leah and, and, and what kids they have at that point, they, just, they, they leave Laban because it's just become an even, it's become totally unsustainable. It's a mess. Now, this one's even worse. When he, <laughs> Perez and Tamar. Here's what happens here. I've got, because this is one's complicated. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Judah's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So, you know, becomes one of the tribes of Israel. Marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. All right. <laughs> Funny old names, but there you go. And they're all fellas. So, um, they choose a wife for Ur called Tamar. Okay, but then Ur, who is a wicked man, is struck down by God and dies. And so then um, Onan has to come in, lever at marriage, um, and, be, and be joined with Tamar. Um, however, when they're making love, having sex, however you want to put it, he insists every time on um, coming out of her um, and spilling his sperm on the ground because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be involved in this lever at marriage given his brother um, um, uh, offspring, etc. So God strikes him dead. So then... Yep, and then so, uh, and so then you've got Tamar left there, 
Go, okay, and then and Sheila, right? Sheila's a guy, okay? So Sheila's the third son of Judah, and Judah goes, Judah goes blow this. Everyone who marries Tamar, look what happens to him. So he says, when Sheila's grown up, we'll give you Sheila then. But he doesn't mean he's lying. So he says, go back and live with your dad for now. We'll be in touch, okay? So Tamar goes back to her dad. Sheila grows up. Tamar's going, he's stitched me right up here. So she dresses up as a prostitute with a veil over her face. Uh, when Judah's on his way somewhere, she deliberately sits where she knows he's, he's going. He walks by and he, offers, he asks if he can have sex with her. She says, yeah. What's, uh, um, and then she says, but you need to give me like a pledge so, um, that you're going to pay me the goat, which is what it's going to cost. So he gives her the pledge, which is a staff and a bit of, a bit of ribbon. And then um, they have sex. She gets pregnant with twins. And then Judah finds out. That Tamar, word gets around, Tamar's pregnant. But shit, how outrageous. Tamar's pregnant. She should be waiting for my son, who I'm never going to give her. Anyway, so he, he, he says, well, we're gonna, we need, she needs to be executed. She, and she said, well, okay, fine. But um, the person who got me pregnant, these, these belong to him. He goes, oh, mate. And he goes, well, you're more righteous than I. Um, she's pregnant with twins. One of them is called Perez. They say in Ruth... May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord. Now, when you get further into the, into the book of Numbers and you see all of these counting of the different, what you find is, is that Perez in the line of Judah, which is part of this, this lot in Bethlehem, they've got, the, they've got more offspring than anyone else, more blessed than anyone else. That's why they say, may your offspring be like Perez. May you have loads and loads of kids. Back to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Right. So, may you be blessed like Perez and Tamar. What? It's a mess. Yeah, but it got redeemed. Rachel and Leah, it's a mess. Yeah, but it got redeemed. And the whole theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. God, by his nature, is a redeemer. The book of Romans says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. In the most dark situations you can imagine, God's, God and his grace moves beyond the darkness to bring redemption. It's the heart of God. It's part of how faith works. It's, faith is able to see through the mess to an outcome currently unseen but hoped for. Why? Because faith is rooted in God who is redemptive by his nature. So that's, that's how faith operates. The, the Bible says that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. That when you find yourself in a situation, you go, this is a mess. That it doesn't end there when you know the Lord. Why? Because you've got a redeemer. And the redeemer says, yes, the, the redeemer doesn't. It's not like unreality. Oh, it's not a mess. No, this is a mess. But something can come in. That will turn it around. Now here's the reality. I want us to face these things. Number one. Sometimes the mess we are in is our own doing. Right? And we have to live in the consequences of the choices we make. Okay? Sometimes it is that. Other times the mess we're in is not our own doing. We essentially find ourselves in the consequences of choices other people have made. Or the legacy of the choices of other people have made. You just think... How did I get myself here? So life's complex. And let's be honest as well, very often it's a mixture of the two, right? 
You go, oh, it's their fault. Oh, it's also my fault. You, know, you go, but it's a mess. Either way, I want to put to you today that Jesus Christ wants to redeem the mess. And I want to read you a couple of scriptures just to show us this so that we can find ourselves in our... We all want to get to that Ruth 4 moment, don't we? Yeah? Some of us, we're in a Ruth 1. It's a disaster. Or we're in a Ruth 2. There's a bit of hope. A Ruth 3. Could go either way. We all want to get to Ruth 4. where We're high-fiving. We're celebrating. We're saying, look what the Lord has done. Am I right? So how do we get there? Well, let's just get into this a little bit. and just So there's a, a book in the Bible called Titus. Titus 2.14 says this. It says, um, 13 and 14. Um, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Bible says there that Jesus came to give himself for us, to redeem us from all, all lawlessness. All of us, the Bible says, have broken God's law. All of us. One way or the other, we've all turned away and we've all got into stuff, made choices, decisions, coming out of a sinful heart, okay, that have got us into situations. You think, ah, oh, how's it ended up this way? We've done our own thing. We've not followed the Lord. We thought we've known better. We've not trusted him. Whatever, however it's worked out, that's the reality. The Bible there says that Jesus comes to redeem us from that. Okay? So if, it's, if, it's, if you're going, my mess is my choice, okay? the Bible says Jesus comes to redeem you from the lawlessness and all the mess that it brings. Okay? But then here's, for those of you that are here and you're going, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. The Bible says in the book of Peter, chapter 1, verse 18, it says that you were not um, um, ransomed. Ransomed and redeemed, exactly the same thing. The word is used, in, the, the theme is interchangeable. It's the idea of buying something back. You weren't ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, um, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So if you're here and you're going, I'm just living in the, 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 the consequences of the choices others have made. Futile ways that I've kind of inherited. I'm just, I'm in it. I, I just find myself, I'm either in patterns of thinking or patterns of behavior or just circumstances because of, because of the people that I'm connected to and these crazy choices they made. It's unfair. It's out of order. The Bible says the blood of Christ redeems you from that as well. It's beautiful. Absolutely fantastic. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, just to say to you, listen, the blood of Jesus can wash you clean from every sin, every guilt, every shame, every nasty, dark thing. Completely liberate you and give you a brand new start. Please hear that. It's not naivety. It's not, this isn't folly. This isn't just crazy. This is real. This room is full of people who have turned to Jesus and found a new start. Amen? Please hear this. How do we engage in this process of redemption? How do we do that? All of us will be facing things. To, I can pretty much guarantee if I get, some of you straight away you go, yeah, that's a mess right now. Some of you are going, hmm, if I give you two minutes, you can think of something. You're going, I wish that wasn't like that. I wish that could turn around. I wish that could change. I wish we could see life come there. There's so much death there. I wish we could see order there. It's so chaotic. I wish we could see beauty there. It's got so ugly. All of us have things. We know life is not perfect for any of us. 
What do we do? Well, number one, listen, if you know there are elements of it that are because of choices you've made, confess, repent, own it. Own it. Don't put the blame somewhere else when you know you've got blame. Don't do that. Sometimes we are afraid to own up to our mistakes because we think if we do that, God will judge us. The reality is if we do that, God will forgive us. It's when we refuse to repent and own what we've done wrong that God will judge us. It's such a trick. Oh no, I'll just hide it. I'll just build a, build a, like, a little house of kind of excuses and ideas to keep me from, because then you know if I if I was to own up to that what would happen I'll tell you what would happen if you were to own up to that the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness he will come in like a flood with love and mercy that's what he would do anyone in the room experienced that sound like you've enjoyed it please <laughs> goodness me have anyone experienced that yeah. you're sitting the sword was hanging over you it's not anymore. Why? Because you brought it out into the light. You owned it and the blood of Jesus cleansed you and forgave you and rescued you. That is incredible good news. If you can't rejoice over that, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't. Maybe you, didn't, maybe you don't realize the situation. Maybe you don't actually realize what was. The sword was hanging over you. He is a God of justice as well as a God of mercy. He will deal with all wrongs. That's why the cross, that's where God dealt with the wrong. Whereas if you come to the cross and cling to it, you, that transaction, Christ takes your sin in his body. If you refuse to, you bear your own judgment. It's the reality. That's the reality. What if it wasn't your fault? What, what, what's, the, what's the key step in redemption? Forgiveness. Because what you don't forgive... You become. Someone knows that's the truth. What you don't forgive, you become. It is imperative. If you are one who names the gospel as, you, as, as the message that you believe, where Christ died for your sins, that you forgive those who have sinned against you. It's imperative. It's not an option. And that is how you walk out of the mess. If you don't do that, you stay stuck in it. It becomes a place of torment. It's so important that you understand this. If it's, your, if it's a mess caused by you, own it. Confess, repent, receive forgiveness. If it's a mess caused by others, forgive. Forgive and walk free. Then what? Then put God first. Put God first. You know, all, all of God's redemptive work is gracious, but you know, God, you know God looks for hearts. Did you know that? The Bible, what does the Bible say about King David? It says, I found a man after my own heart. God looks for hearts. What does it say in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully his. If you put God first, he will honor you. He will honor that. So much effort and energy is spent by people refusing to put God first and trying to sort out situations and it comes to nothing. Five years later, everything's the same. Listen, guys, it's not smart. It's just not smart. You're going in circles. Trust him. I was reading this the other day. This was my, my reading the other morning. I just was so thrilled. 
It was one of those mornings where you're like, oh, Lord, have mercy. You know those mornings? It was one of those ones, you know. The whole thing feels ridiculous. And you're embarrassed. You know when you're embarrassed about your prayer time? You ever have those? You think this is just deadly. Lord, I wouldn't stick around for this if I was you. Those ones. <laughs> but nevertheless, he's kind. So listen to this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. This is it. Listen. Trust in him and he will act. That is incredible. Because when God acts, when God moves, when God does something, it takes care of everything. You go, wow, how did you do that? He weaves the whole thing together. It's extraordinary. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Trust him. Resist fear and darkness. You've not been given a spirit to make you a slave again to fear if you are a believer. Do not give in to it. Do not give way to it. Do not let it govern you. Do not give in to the darkness of bitterness and resentment and revenge. Don't do it. Trust in the Lord and he will. Do you believe that? It's the living God. The whole whole thread of the Bible shows you the difference between the living God and idols. Idol is something you make, okay? whether that's an idea in your head or a little model. You carry it from room to room because it can't walk. You feed it a little saucer of milk when no one's looking, tip it away. Oh, look, it can't drink. Okay, why? Because you made it. The living God made you. And the Bible says, does not he who made the eye see? Does not he who made the mouth speak? Do you believe he's alive? Do you believe he cares? Do you believe he's good? Do you believe he will act on your behalf? Act like it. Act like it. Otherwise, it's just empty confession. No power in that. Sorry, folks. Act like it. And then finally, stay engaged in the big story. The enemy loves to make ourselves the focus of our attention. He loves us to go in on ourselves. And our culture is dying from self-consumption. You are too small to ever bring a sense of genuine meaning and fullness to your own story. You were made for something bigger than you. You were made for him and his story and what he is doing. And by his grace, you can get to play a part in that significant part where he calls you by name and loves you, but you're part of something bigger than you. And the enemy loves us to just think about ourselves and how we've been wronged and how we've been this and how we've been that. And there's a place for mourning. There's a place for all of that. But if it can suck you into the vortex where it's all about you, well, then what? He's one, isn't he? He's one. Because he's, he's put your head down, 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 down. Instead of, instead of understanding the things that happen in our lives, good, bad, tough, and all of that, dark, difficult, somehow, if we allow him, he'll weave it into his story. And he'll use it for his glory. And we'll find ourselves saying, you know what, I never would have chosen that. But God has done something extraordinary through it. And God will be glorified through it. And you will be more like Jesus as a result of it. And everything becomes Ruth. Four. 
Amen? So, it's, so listen, folks, this is such an important thing as we come to the end of this, this Ruth story that we bring it, pull it now into our own story and say, right, where's the mess? Are we going to trust God to redeem it? Where's it not worked out as I'd hoped? If it's your own fault, own it, confess. If it's others, forgive. None of this is easy. Sometimes you tell people stuff and they go, oh no, yeah, but you don't understand. I tried that and it wasn't easy. And it's like, duh. It was never meant to be easy, folks. If you signed up for Christianity, it's pretty easy. Like, what on earth were you thinking? Who lied to you? It's not easy. It's impossible. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's difficult. It's rigorous. It gets to the core of us. Okay, it requires everything. Okay, if you've not bought in on that ticket, you might need to go back and rethink and decide again if you want to be involved. It requires everything to walk with God. So please don't go sit and think, oh, this will be... No, it won't be easy, but I'm just giving you clarity here, not ease. There's a difference. Okay, here's the clarity. If it's your fault, own it. If it's not, forgive. Put God first. Trust him and he will act. Resist fear and darkness. Stay engaged in the big story. All for the glory of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right. Who wants to just do a little bit of business with God? I'm assuming that's all of you by the, by the uh, silence. I'm going to take that as a God silence rather than a disengagement. I'm just going to roll with that. If you know that you just need to freshly put, 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 put what's going on in your life, into the hands of Christ. You know. I'm not looking at you. No one's looking at you at this point. This is about primarily it starts with you and the Lord. You always have to work these things through in fellowship. You always have to work it through with brothers and sisters because we're none of us are islands. But it starts with a, 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 a moment before God where you say, Lord, I'm going to honour you. You know you just need to say, Lord, this is a bit of a mess, and today I want to look to you freshly for redemption in it. Then you just stand to your feet and look to the Lord where you are.